The podcast of this local government meeting is brought to you by Michigan Radio. For more coverage of local government meetings and to find out how you can support this service, go to michiganradio.org. Again, thank you for your patience. Thank you for being here. When you guys get situated and settled, just make sure your microphone is on by touching the bottom. And just state your name and title, and the floor is yours. Thank you so much. Um, Good afternoon. Um, My name is Tammy Daniels, and I am the CEO for the Detroit Land Bank Authority, and I'm here with other members of our executive team to um, present our budget as well as answer any questions that this honorable body may have. Turn it over to Mr. Scott. Through the chair, good afternoon. Reginald Scott, COO, CFO at the Detroit Land Bank Authority. Good afternoon. My name is John O'Han. I'm the Director of Real Estate Sales and Marketing for the Detroit Land Bank Authority. All right. Good afternoon. My name is Rob Lynn. I'm the Director of Planning and Data Analysis at the Land Bank. And uh, good afternoon through the chair. My name is Doug Parker. I am the General Counsel at the Land Bank. We do have a um, presentation um, with slides. I think Malik provided that for you. Okay, perfect. And then we're going to cast it to the screen so that the audience. President uh, Sheffield, we also wanted to ensure that you received answers to our, the LPD questions that were issued to us on March 8th. We um, were attempting to submit them through the smart sheet, but I'm not that technologically savvy. Okay, perfect. Okay, perfect. Thank you. All right. Are we just are we just waiting for him to log on to? Okay. 
think we're ready now. Okay, I think we're ready now. Okay. Sorry for the delay. No so, um, the land bank, I know we have um, had a very um, questionable uh, relationship with um, council, but I think that the city through council was very wise in creating the land bank because historically what we have seen is that for almost 50 years there was a problem with the volume of private, I mean, of uh, property and public ownership. So the, the, the city over, since 1975, there has been just an increase in the amount of ownership that was in public, in, in the public hands. Um, most drastically, as you can see by this chart, with the creation of the land and the, and the wisdom to put everything in one location, the land bank at the height of its inventory had in excess of 100,000 parcels of property in its inventory. And for the first time in almost 50 years, we see, because of the land bank's successful programming, an actual decline in public ownership. That's the first time that that has happened. And that is, um, I think, truly because of the wisdom of this council and the administration to see the value of what the land bank can do. Next slide. And so how have we been successful at tackling that, pro that problem? We have <clears throat> sold over 17,000 properties. And with, that, with those sales, over 9,000 individuals have <clears throat> achieved compliance, restoring those properties and making them habitable. We currently have about 6,500 buyers in our current uh, pipeline that we are actively monitoring to help them get over that finish line. And we also have another 1,100 individuals who have successfully completed our buyback and occupied programming. Um, those are individuals who were living in land bank houses but had a relationship to the property. Either their family previously owned it or they were renting from someone who lost it to tax foreclosure and they didn't know. And so we have been able through th those two programs to successfully transition those properties back into the hands of those individuals who were a victim or did not know or whose family um, had previously owned it. And so we're very proud of that particular program. Next slide. We've also had, um, as I said, success with our structure sales. We've sold over 17,000 properties since 2014, a feat that um, was previously, I guess, uh, was not thought of. As you can see, the sales of res residential structures in the prior years are dwarfed by what we've been able to do using the tools that we have created at the land bank, tools that, um, quite frankly, can be used for greater things. And so I'd love for us to start imagining and thinking about how can we use the land bank to do more for the city. Next slide. Our, our vacant lot sales. 
we have sold in excess of 28,000 vacant lots over the history of, um, of our programming. Again, something that had not been imagined previously because um, the, the land bank is set up to, to operate at a scale that the city government could not, could not achieve. Of those 28,000 lot sales, 24,000 of them are sold to Detroit residents through our side lot <coughs> or neighborhood lot program. So those are Detroiters who are um, taking, uh, taking ownership of those properties, not investors, not out-of-staters, but people who've lived here and who have, um, have, have weathered the storm of what Detroit has gone through. Our nuisance abatement program, something that we are ramping up, is a program that seeks to um, address blight in the neighborhood by holding private property owners uh, responsible for the condition of their property. We view ourselves as advocates for the neighbors who take care of their property, who have children and elderly residents who cannot you know, enjoy their neighborhood but because of that blighted property that's next door, that's open to trespass, that, um, that needs to be taken care of. And so in this map, it reflects that in over 1,700 instances, private owners through um, intervention by the land bank have stepped up and taken responsibility for their properties and gotten them back into a habitable condition, not requiring the land bank to take ownership, but they've taken, taken responsibility for their property. And so we are very proud of that, that program because it, 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 it has been a part of what has driven property values to go up in the city. As you are well aware, <clears throat> again, we've sold over seven, uh, 17,000 structures, but this map reflects the cumulative effect of the, the NAP rehabs and our sales rehabs. Properties that have been, that have gotten, um, that are in our pipeline or have achieved compliance coupled with those where prop private property owners are taking responsibility of their properties. And finally, this last map <clears throat> shows all the properties that have been demoed that were in the land bank inventory. The 15,000 that we demolished under HHF plus the additional almost 10,000 that the city has demolished under Prop N um, <clears throat> account for almost 40, over 42,000 properties where some sort of intervention by the land bank has taken place to, to make the city just a better place to, to live. And so what has that resulted in? We, our numbers, we currently estimate that we return about $17.7 million in tax revenue to the roles by selling these properties and getting them back into productive use. So that's $17.7 million, $17 million that the city is seeing in tax revenue that it would not see but for our intervention. And we believe that by the <clears throat> close of 2024, fiscal year 2024, that number will be closer to $20 million. And so... Um, the subsidy that we have requested is 11 million. The math is really simple on that. We're bringing you 20 and we're asking for 11, you're making out. <laughs> There's a profit there for you. There's a benefit that the land bank continues to um, produce. And I think that we can produce even more of a benefit. I feel like there's an opportunity for us to work together and imagine more programming that will be beneficial for the city and the residents. We have also had um, demonstrated impact on the market in, in excess of $800 million between demolitions, the rehabs that are completed, and the ones that are, are underway. We have estimated our impact on the city and its, res, and its uh, property values to be in excess of $800 million. 
And those numbers are not numbers that we create, um, came up with. Those are sourced from Munitrix, <laughs> an outside third party who's done that, that, that calculation. Um, <clears throat> we've seen home values in the city quadruple. And that's not in just, you know, cer certain areas. It's all across the city. When we started back in 2024, the average sales price of a Detroit um, home or Detroit, yeah, a home was, was $33,000. Average sales price now is $123,000. And we believe our interventions can be directly um, related to, these, um, to this impact. We have seen, as we as we've showed, we've seen through our um, sales, our structure sales, reoccupancy numbers, the density in the neighborhoods is growing. We're, we're restoring the neighborhoods, and this is happening across all of the city. Again, this this um, map shows <clears throat> that the that household populations are growing across the entire city, from in every district is seeing a positive impact. And then finally, this, what, this last map shows the number of properties that um, are in the hands of new Detroiters, people who have moved into the city. So there's all, you know, it's always a concern about us losing residents. This, this map shows that our, our sales are helping to return people to the city. People are moving in the city. They see the opportunity um, that the land bank and that the city provides, and they want to be a part of that. And so those are just some of the impacts that we've had. And how have we, um, I think, achieved a lot of this? It's through um, a couple of efforts, a couple of operational um, changes that we've made at the land bank during the last fiscal year. One, increased community outreach. You know, COVID robbed everybody of the ability to be kind of in person, but we have... Um, in this last year changed that. We are actively in the community. We actively um, seek out opportunities to partner with every member of council to attend your community meetings, to attend your housing fairs, uh, Councilmember Johnson, to attend um, your community meeting on the 14th, uh, Councilmember Whitfield Callaway. We are actively trying to make sure that we are supporting you and your residents and answering questions about the land bank and how they navigate the land bank and getting access to, to land. And so we will continue to do that. We're actually planning to ramp it up um, in the coming months. But we, we have also launched month, monthly constituent services and office hours and procurement office hours. The um, constituent service office hours are, are geared at people with more complex issues that you know the, the customer service reps may not be able to answer. It's been escalated, walking them through, holding their hand, trying to get them a resolution. And if things at that, at the, at that level don't work, I also host a monthly meeting where I invite um, residents who are having a complex issue into that meeting so that we can walk through it and try to resolve it. We also have uh, procurement office hours because the land bank does do uh, rehab. And so we want to ensure that Detroiters and small businesses have an opportunity to participate. And so we reach out and we're in the community doing, um, participating in as many um, fairs as we can to make sure that small minority-based businesses know how to navigate and participate in our, our programming and can, and 
can get contracts and do work for the land bank. And <clears throat> we've also engaged in direct engagement with your staff. We've, um, we've launched our quarterly meetings with each of you that have been extremely helpful in us learning about the challenges that you are having with constituents about the land bank and trying to remedy those real time, as well as to inform you on a more um, regular basis about what is going on at the land bank and what would you like to see happening at the land bank. And what I'm, I think I'm most proud of is the improvements that we've made to our customer service. When, <clears throat> when I began to dig into the problem, because I had heard quite a bit of um, feedback about the, the level of customer service and the wait times to try to get access to the land bank, um, in June of, of 2022, we had a answer rate of 58%. So we, were, we averaged about 5,000 calls a month. And we were... Sorry about that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So we, we averaged about 5,000 calls a month, and we were only answering about 58% of those calls. In February, that number is up to 93%. I'm extremely proud of us being able to go from a 58% answer rate to a 93% answer rate. There's still opportunity for that because I want it to be 100%, but we are making significant progress. In June, we had an abandoned call rate, meaning people were tired of waiting on the phone, of 42%. We now have an abandoned call rate of 7% because we're answering the phones. That is the goal of our customer service reps, to make sure that we answer the phones as timely as possible and that we, we try to provide as much information on that first call as possible. My personal goal is to resolve as many calls um, on the first call as possible, but I recognize that 100% of calls won't be resolved because a lot of times people call with very complex issues that require some additional um, investigation. But we're working toward that goal. Um, our average wait time, which I, I definitely heard about, was on average 63.2 minutes back in June. It is now 3.2 minutes. So when you call, we answer the phone. That has been um, <laughs> impressed upon the staff how critically important that we deliver quality customer service to our residents. Um, time and time again, and we will continue to improve and continue to look for opportunities for ways that we can improve, and I will continue to seek out feedback from this honorable body on things that we can do to improve customer service because it is critically important that we are seen by our residents as providing a service, answering their questions, and um, helping them navigate. The land bank is a very complex organization, but we can make it simple by simply having conversations with our residents. So what are our current challenges? I, you know, we've done a lot, but we have a lot to do. And some of our current challenges that I want to make sure that's on your radar is we have an occupied pipeline. So we have about 2,000 properties in our inventory that are occupied. The land bank um, has, again, has a programming that has helped about 1,000 people through buyback and occupy. Own, the, own their, their homes. So we still have about 2,000 houses left where there are individuals that are living in homes that are land bank owned. And we have traditionally, our tools, again, have been geared toward people who had a connection. We need to expand and reimagine 
um, what those pro what programs are like to assist this population. And so I'm looking for feedback and help from your from this honorable body honorable body about how we can create programming to address this issue. We um, are particularly sensitive to this population, and we want to create programming that is sensitive to this population. Um, we also are uh, concerned about our, our compliance pipeline. We have, again, about 6,500 properties that are in our compliance, compliance pipeline. And as this um, body is aware, our, we make sure that we have very low barriers to entry. We want everybody to participate, be able to participate in land bank programming. So, but, but with having low barriers to entry, we don't vet people on the front end. And so a lot of people come into our programming, they buy a house, and they are not equipped to navigate that rehab process. We have a team of, of individuals who are tasked with helping them, but we do need more resources for our um, auction and own it now buyers to help them get across the finish line. We have intentionally scaled down our um, compliance requirements to make it more um, achievable, but it still requires that they remediate the exterior blight, they get utilities on in the house, that the roof and the porch system be intact, that they have a working furnace and water heater, that they have a, a operable kitchen and a bathroom. Those are, and those are the compliance requirements. And having scaled them down to that, people still struggle. We currently have about a little less than 1,500 people who are in that, that, that zone of struggle that are potential reconvey. We haven't taken the properties back, but they are in that, that area, and we are feverishly working to try to help them. And the, the housing fair will be a good um, tool to try to help those people get resources to successfully complete their, um, complete their renovation. Um, other concerns we have are maintenance. On our lots, we have 64,000 lots in our inventory. And while we are aware of additional funding that has been made um, available for the city to, to, to deal with, you know, cutting the, cutting the lawns and trees, we still get a substantial number of calls about land bank lots. And we have seen our maintenance costs increase 50% year over year because we do have a small budget that we use for emergency um, calls. Um, so we still, have, we still are concerned about um, the need for tree maintenance, illegal dumping, vehicle removals, tires, things of that nature that are, that are, you know, happen on our lots that I'm sure we're going to continue to get calls about. And let's see, we are also upgrading our Salesforce platform. So we um, are actively negotiating an agreement to, to have a more robust Salesforce platform. As I'm sure you all have been trained about Salesforce and how to use it, and we are gonna be moving to a more um, current version of that platform. And it is a, an artful lift that we have to do because we wanna make sure that while we do have the latest and the greatest that we don't um, interrupt our ability to do business while that's happening. But I just want to put that on your radar. Um, we also are seeing an easing of it, but COVID, of course, impacted a lot of things. It impacted um, hearings. So our quiet title and NAP hearings had been delayed. Um, we have seen the court um, an easing of that delay, but we also want to put that on people's radar that, you know, we do um, 
a lot of our, our properties are in those pipelines, and so it, it takes a while for things to get through the court process. And finally, like every other um, household or individual or business, we also struggle with the economic realities of where, what's going on in the world today. Inflation, supply chain, staffing, contractor shortages, all those things impact the, the land bank as well. And we um, work feverishly on a, daily, daily, on a daily basis to try to overcome those challenges. Um, and then I'll just hit uh, our goals. Looking forward, what are our goals? So we um, currently have about 3,000 salvageable properties. We are hopeful that we will get through our current inventory by the end of 2024, selling about 1,500 um, properties annually. We are also um, hopeful that we will be able to help 1,800 people annually achieve compliance on their properties. That, um, that's about a three-and-a-half-year um, timeline for the current 6,500 that are in our pipeline. But we have, um, we have the surveying effort that, that you just approved, which will identify additional properties that are blighted, which will bring additional properties into our inventory through the NAP um, program. Uh, also, as much as um, we are going to be feverishly trying to help our compliance um, buyers navigate that the risk of being in a potential reconfig, we recognize that there are going to be some number of people who won't be successful. We have an overall compliance failure rate of 10% over since the beginning of the program. So 90% of our buyers are successful, but there is a 10% um, of our population that are not successful. So those properties will come back into our pipeline as well. But <clears throat> we, um, so we're that's us managing and being mindful of what our inventory will look like. We are looking for expanded, as I said, expanded resources for our auction and own and now purchasers, expanded um, programming for our occupied, ramping up our nuisance debatement. We're looking to expand disposition programming to support affordable housing initiatives and vacant land sales. Uh, we're going to be relaunching in the spring our very popular sideline fairs and building blocks events. And we are finalizing our five-year plan um, during in fiscal year 2024, and we will begin the impl implementation during the second half of the fiscal year. And finally, we plan to list an additional 7,500 vacant lots on our website. We currently have uh, about 27,000 listed for sale right now, but we want to list more. And those, the 27,000 is either side lots or a neighborhood lot. So those are lots available to Detroiters. And um, while we are asking for an $11 million subsidy, I just want this council to know that we are, we are aware and we are actively seeking other funding through philanthropy. I mean, there's a lot of money at MISHTA for um, blight, infill housing, affordable housing, uh, middle-income housing, modular housing, greening and beautification. Um, we are seeking funding to support our five-year plan. We have a on long-standing relationship with Rocket Community Fund to help us with our rehabbed and ready efforts, and we continue to um, we will continue to um, use that money to to make sure that program remains successful. Uh, we we have a, been awarded money to Eagle for, through Eagle to do tire remedi to remove to remove uh, tires from our property, um, and also we have money from our for our some a small amount of money for our compliance. Um, buyers, our finish line program, 
with Fifth Third and Amer First, they have given us money to help them get over the finish line. That money is fast drawing to a close, but we will be continuing to try to get more money um, from some of our banking and philanthropic partners to help support um, those efforts. And finally, um, this is our budget, but I would be remiss if I did not mention that our MOU is up um, at the end of this year. December, December of 2023, our MOU expires, and I do think um, we should begin to, to have a conversation about um, what a renewal looks like. I think it's an opportunity, as I said, for the city to reimagine how it uses the powerful tool that is the land bank. Um, the MOU process is an opportunity to create additional programming that will benefit the city and its residents. And on this last slide, um, just highlights what the current MOU asks from the land bank. Um, on the left side is our ongoing services that we provide on a regular basis. And on, on the right is what we have, the commitments that we have fulfilled that were asked of us that we completed. Um, and I will note that to my knowledge, there are no um, unanswered um, commitments that we have done what we have been asked to do and we will continue to do that. So. Um, I'm looking forward to working with this council and, and the administration on the MOU uh, renewal process. And with that, we are open to take any questions. All right. Thank you so much for the presentation. And we will go directly to questions from council members. And we'll start with council member Benson. All right. Thank you. Uh, thank you all for being here today. Um, it's always a pleasure been a uh, long time supporter of the land bank, even before the land bank was a robust land bank established at this level back in 2014. I remember when as a grassroots nonprofit developer, CDAD, LISC, Warren Connor, Eastside Landing, we were all calling for a land bank in the city of Detroit based on what Dan Kildee at the time um, out in Genesee County before he became a congressman had established in Michigan, and that was huge. And I, I think at this table now, we don't have anybody that has a memory of what land sales were like in the city of Detroit prior to the establishment of a robust land bank. And Doug Diggs taking on that role in 2009, may he rest in power, until we established a robust funded land bank, we didn't see this type of success. There was a time when it would take years to purchase a single vacant lot, take years, and it was, un it was unimaginable that you would be successful in purchasing a lot with a structure on it from the city of Detroit. And now you're looking at 2014, and I'm, that should be an asterisk here because you weren't even established at this level until 2015, and within the first year, your one-year sales of structures and vacant lots eclipse uh, the previous seven years. And so just to show what type of impact the land bank had when it came to being a fully funded and robust entity had on our ability to transition sales from our portfolio being a liability into private hands, making those tax-paying assets well, within the city of Detroit. So I just want to continue to commend the work that you all have done. Also glad to see that we're now at a point where we're seeing a reduction in land sales for the land bank. And we're going from, and, and I believe that to be just the fact that your portfolio is starting to dwindle and you are working yourselves out of a job. So we're really excited to see that. Um, just I have a couple questions. 
when it comes to the future uh, of the land bank? I mean, what are we doing to ensure that you all continue to work your way out of jobs? And I believe the last entity that will need, or at least tool that we're going to need, is going to be quiet title. And so quiet title is critical, but in your report, it indicates that you guys are having trouble due to court backlogs. What are we doing to ensure that we're moving forward with the ability to do quiet title uh, at the land bank, which I believe will be the end core tool that you all will bring to the table? So through the chair, um, Councilmember Benson, we did see during COVID um, a slowdown, a backlog, and we did receive complaints from people who were attempting to purchase land that it was taking a while. And it was because, um, like many organizations, the remote work scenario caused a delays in, in the, the um, certifying of judgments. We have seen an easing in that, like it has really um, all but gone away. But we recognize that it is, you know, we operate as many organizations at the mercy of other parties. And so I just want to keep that on our radar, that that, that was an issue that, um, and it may become an issue again because I have no control over that, but we did see an easing. But that is the, um, we have seen an easing, and, and we don't anticipate anything in the very near future to be a problem. But it was, it was an issue. Okay, and then just knowing when my office calls, you all respond. You all have been very, very helpful. Currently working on hopefully a 40-parcel deal for our reforestation in the 3rd District, hoping to get that supported. You all are working with us with the uh, John R. Business Association to do beautification efforts um, along John R., hoping to uh, move that forward as well. Um, one of the issues that we've had, and this is um, from a few years back now, and uh, the reconciliation of residential properties versus commercial properties with PDD. I know there are a number of commercial properties still in your portfolio. Those should be in PDD's portfolio. What are we doing to make sure that that issue gets reconciled? Through the chair, I'm going to uh, let my esteemed colleague, Robbie Lynn, answer that question. So, uh, through the chair, um, thank you so much for raising that issue. It's something we're actively working on. Uh, to your point, the land bank does maintain a very small portfolio of uh, commercial properties, and these are really properties that came to us through the state. Mm -hmm. um, the challenge is that we know many of these have environmental issues uh, tied to them, um, and under the uh, federal CERCLA laws, um, if the land bank were to transfer them to the city voluntarily, the city would then become a uh, party liable for the cleanup and the uh, expense there. And so we are actively working with our colleagues uh, at the city to transfer them over um, uh, as the city is able to address those issues. Um, uh, to your point also about sort of uh, remaining residential properties, the city does maintain a very small portfolio of residential structures and land, and we are actively working to um, transfer them to the land bank over time so they can be made available. I, th I think the challenge there we are running into is that we are um, uh, continually discovering new properties that are, in fact, owned by the city, but, you know, records have not been maintained over the years. And so uh, this is a very small uh, inventory, but we actually have staff now working on it actively to uncover those, you know, few uh, remnant parcels. Okay, thank you. And then just on sheet nine, when you all talk about a 17 $0.7 million impact on our general fund and moving forward looking at that to grow to 19.8 about $20 million Just say that you all were being a bit liberal with those numbers and we reduced that by 30% That's still a huge impact 
on our general fund in exchange for an $11 million investment in your organization. That is a great return on our general fund dollars. That's a great ROI. I hope that you all continue to do that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Member Benson. I just really quick, I have to piggyback on Member Benson and the return on investment. So I guess my concern or my issue or question and trying to get an understanding is, aside from the $11 million that we uh, contribute to your operations, we also do in-kind services. I mean, GSD provides maintenance for properties. You also mentioned um, alley cleaning, um, tree trimming. I'm so, so have we quantified the amount of other departments that provide services to GSD? Because I would argue that it's way more than $11 million that the city is contributing to the Detroit Land Bank Authority. So through the chair, I'm going to turn that question over to Reginald Scott to talk about um, uh, our services that the city provides and what the land bank pays um, for that. All right. Yes. <clears throat> Good afternoon. Through the chair. So to ad address the first question as far as lot maintenance, uh, the Detroit Land Bank Authority, we do pay uh, GSD for lot clearance at about $700,000 annually. And that, is, that has been ongoing for the last five years through our HHF um, reimbursement. So we pay for those services. And we, but as far as, so quantifying um, our other numbers, we resp the services that we cannot refer to GSD uh, due to uh, scheduling or something like that, we have an internal maintenance team that provides those services as well. So it is a joint effort to do both. So currently this year, um, just from a statistic standpoint, we've done 1,200 debris requests internally, um, 137 illegal dump sites that we've cleared, and 69 dump or lawn sites that we have. However, we have about 1,200 uh, active maintenance requests within our queue and about 400 tree requests. So we take an additional, so in our budget, in our operating budget, how it works is that about $11 million comes from the city. That covers staffing. That, that basically covers our staffing costs. All benefit costs and other is generated by our sales revenue. In addition to our sales revenue, though, um, we gener from the sales revenue that we generate, we allocate another $3.5 million annually for maintenance. And very candidly, that is not enough to address all of our needs, but we work simultaneously with GSD. So, yes, there are some instances where we refer things to GSD and we benefit from the service of the GSD. Absolutely. We, we definitely partner with GSD. Yeah. Um, but we, we also pay for those lot clearances. But if there's the instance by paying $700,000 a year, um, that is for the lot maintenance of those uh, HHF lots, which is um, those, the lots that are in our inventory. Gotcha. But, you know, so... The challenge comes sometimes, though, is, is not as simple as just cutting. We have five cuts a year, but it's not as simple as cutting when there's illegal dumping and waste that's there. So our team sometimes has to go out, remove um, things that are within our capabilities. We have a small staff of about seven people, uh, two vehicles, and a limited amount of equipment. So, yes, we do partner you know, with GSD and, and neighborhoods as well, but it's a comprehensive work between us both. Got you. And I, and I hear you, and I, from my understanding, though, I think there is uh, a line item in GSD's budget outside of which you are paying them $700,000 that they have dedicated to land bank authority maintenance. Is that correct? Um, I believe so, yes. I see someone shaking their hair in the back. Do you know the amount for that? Uh, yes, Madam President. Donnie Johnson, Associate Budget Director. Uh, the General Services Department has $2.6 million okay. for Detroit land bank property maintenance. Okay. 
So that's in addition to what you all are paying them. So it's not necessarily 11. It's a little bit more than 11 that we're giving to you all annually. And I still believe that in addition to that, we are providing services. It's not to, you know, attack you all or anything, but I just, you know, I'm a, I'm a firm believer uh, in trying to bring more uh, operations at the land bank in-house. I understand the legal authority that it gives you all to move things quicker, but my issue with authorities has always been transparency, accountability, and oversight. And I truly believe that, you know, we can move things in-house. We move demolition in-house. You all are getting ready to, I think the mayor mentioned 7,000 houses are left and that will be done by 2024. And so I just believe that, you know, from a transparency and accountability standpoint, the much, the more we can move within the city of Detroit, the better. So um, I just wanted to address that. And then um, I will turn it over and come back to myself because I just wanted to touch on the budget part of it because that's important to me. So thank you, Member Benson. Uh, we will now go to Member Johnson. Thank you, Madam President, and good afternoon to all of you. Um, first, I want to say thank you for always responding to my team's calls um, and the invitation to do work in our district, really to uh, move properties and land uh, to residents, uh, particularly those in the district. Uh, and so I know that we have an event coming up on the 20th, and our focus is just to provide support for people to complete the process so that they can come into compliance. I do want to ask, because I think we've talked about this uh, in some of our meetings, because so Council President talked about the finances um, and the support that we provide to the Detroit Land Bank Authority. Um, one of the things that I think is important is if we can identify ways for the land bank to provide support to the city to help the city improve or increase its coffers, um, especially along the line of the work that you do, right? I think it would help us to be able to say, okay, we these are justifiable costs. Uh, these are things that we are doing um, collaboratively to be able to increase revenue for the city in general. And one of those things that I think is important is as particularly uh, individuals that are not owner occupants who acquire land bank houses um, to make sure that they go through the uh, compliance process with building safety and engineering uh, so that they have a certificate of occupancy before we actually release them from the land bank's uh, compliance uh, and before the land bank takes its name off of the deed. That then, you know, number one, will ensure that individuals that are renting that property, um, that they can be assured that that property is a quality rental unit. Um, we are putting the property now on the radar of building safety and engineering for them to have their annual or biannual inspections. Uh, and so that generates revenue for building safety and engineering. So can you talk a little bit about being able to and supporting that process uh, just so that we are improving quality in the city. Absolutely. Um, through the through the chair, Council Member Johnson. Um, <clears throat> so when when properties are purchased from the land bank, they are um, made, it's made manifestly clear that they are not in a position where you can live in them. And so there should be no tenant or re or anyone living in the house during the compliance process. We, 
I got so many complaints about um, our reverter deed hanging over property while people were making such substantial um, investments in the property. So the notion of keeping it to the very end, we used to do that. We got so many complaints. People um, were reticent to put that level of investment in a house if we could take it back from them. And so we tried to balance the the notion that we wanted to see people that they were going to make a substantial enough investment. We wanted to get them to the place where we were confident that they had put substantial enough investment into the property where we could let them go on and complete it, and they would not be concerned that we could take it back after they had spent forty, fifty thousand. So we were trying we're trying to balance that. Um, we do. Uh, require individuals who intend to use the house as rental to register as register it as rental property with BCED. We also require that um, they get at least one BCED inspection so that the house can be on BCED's radar and that BC can go in the house and see, you know, what issues need to be addressed. But again, it's a very, um, it's a balancing act that we're trying to do where we're encouraging investment but we are not seen as being too onerous and um, people are afraid to invest in the house for fear that we'll take it back after they put all this money into it so that that's the the um, the, the, the balance we're trying to strike but we are absolutely willing to have conversations about ways we can improve that process um, and and ensure um, greater, you know, transparency with BC and the city. I'm, I'm willing to have any of those conversations. Thank you. Know. Thank you for um, uplifting that because I have also heard that as well, that um, individuals are a little hesitant to uh, put more of their money or they have challenges with receiving financing because of that. So um, I think it's important to have that connection with BC, and so we'll start to look a little bit more deeper into that because I have had a conversation with Director Bell, um, mm -hmm. but just want to make sure that it's something that we are doing and that, you know, it's a smooth transition to BC, and then that BC is following through that process. Um, um, I'm, I, yes. I was just going to also add that um, we also subordinate our reverter for individuals who would like to get a mortgage to try to um, get a mortgage to, to help them finance the rehab we do subordinate our interest to the mortgage company so that it does not prevent someone from getting a mortgage. We do that all the time. That's really interesting because I, I hear, um, I hear that, that challenge very often. So, okay, we'll make sure that people are aware of that. Um, so thank you for adding that. So the other thing, I want to go back to something that Council President uh, mentioned. So during the state of the city, the mayor talked about the 7,000 properties and that by 2024, um, your inventory will be gone, right? Uh, and so you introduced and, and shared an MOU on how to move forward. Um, talk to us about that entire process or what your expectations are because we're, we continually see properties coming out of foreclosure, mm -hmm. uh, the foreclosure process with the county that end up in the Detroit Land Bank Authority's uh, inventory. So I'm not sure if it's just a, an extremely rosy picture uh, of 2024, uh, but want to make sure that we are having conversations and thoughts around 
how to move forward beyond 2024 or I guess beyond this year, um, considering that, you know, the MOU is is expiring through the chair. So um, the mayor's um, presentation talked about our salvageable structures and our demo structures. That's the 7,000 structures that are currently in our inventory. And we do expect to be through those properties by the end of 2024. However, properties are always either coming to us through foreclosure. We have, again, the, prop the, the pipeline that is at risk of compliance, those cycling back into our inventory. Um, we are currently napping. We have 2,500 properties in our NAP pipeline currently, and our new surveying effort that you approved, I think, last week or the week before, is going to identify, we believe, at least another 2,000 properties, and all those properties will in end up back in our inventory. And so the land bank of you know, 2024, 2025, and even 2026, where we had 100,000 properties, that doesn't exist anymore. But a land bank with 63,000 vacant lots and some small um, population of structures, I think, is, all, is, is realistic to expect going forward. And I would um, suggest and think that we should look at other land banks around the, sit of the, the state and the country they, they view the land bank as a, a long-term tool for economic development, neighborhood stabilization, and I think we should do the same. We shouldn't look at this as a, um, a, a disposable tool, but a long-term tool. We can figure out how, how do we use it best. So that's the MOU process. How do we figure out what, what do we want the land bank to do and using those robust tools that it uniquely has to service the city and service its residents. So, um, that's why I think um, we should be thinking, you know, forward thinking, like, how do we do it better? How do we keep improving upon it and, and working for this, the residents? Thank you. Thank uh, you. And, and so it's, I guess, as we figure out how to move forward, we have to recognize that there will be an entity, whether a department within the city, um, the authority, or what have you, that has the responsibility of managing, disposing of the inventory uh, of the city. So um, I appreciate you. appreciate you all. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you, Madam President. Thank you, Councilmember Johnson. Councilmember Durha. Thank you, Madam President. Good afternoon to you all. Uh, I remember last year you were looked at as the boogeyman. <laughs> Uh, and now you guys trying to uh, make progress forward to be the fairy godmother. But uh, <laughs> what I will say is, is you know, we definitely see the progress uh, that has come with the land bank. I think some of that is based off of the leadership. So I, I, I take my hat off to you and you guys turning things around a little bit. We still got ways to go uh, and, and uh, look forward to that. Couple questions that I have, you know, whether we're talking about nuisance abatement, whether we're talking about maintenance, I uh, do understand that it's not necessarily your responsibility. GSD takes a lot of that on as far as the lots are concerned. But going deeper into that, I'd be interested to know what are your thoughts about uh, working not only with GSD or other departments, but to create some type of fund that helps neighbors? Uh, and I'll give you an example. Uh, there's a guy that's 80 years old that owns a lawnmower. Uh, in the Pride area, Mr. Dickerson. Own, he owns his own lawnmower, pays for his own gas, about three or four or five land bank lots or properties that are, that are still structurally sound, and he cuts the grass for each and every one of them. 
because uh, we know and understand that GSD has a limited budget, so it may only cut it one time a year, but if it's heavy torrential rain, that grass is going to grow a little bit faster, right? So what are the thoughts behind creating some type of program uh, that you can partner with those neighbors or neighborhood associations for that matter to ensure that those lots are maintained and those properties in, are, are maintained? Through the chair, um, Council Member Durhall, um, I personally think that is a, a great idea, um, but does take funding to do that. And so I would love to partner with you, again, to create something um, that would, we could, we could support that. Um, we again have 64,000 lots, and so the amount of money that we would need to do it, but I, I you know, that would be a, a great um, way to reward um, the neighbors for maintaining their neighborhood. You want to? Yeah, through the chair, from, also just from a resident standpoint, um, when you, when you said that, that's part of why we are trying, making an effort as well to clean our own lots. Because we have had residents that reach out that said if that lot was in just a bit better condition, I might consider purchasing it as a neighborhood lot. So part of our efforts is streamlining our, you know, our work and the lots that we do address so that if it, there is a complaint that a neighbor says, hey, I'm looking at that lot to do, we, we you know, send our team out, try to remove the debris or, or contract that, that out with our resources so it can get back into the regular fold of, of of cleaning, but then also potentially be sold. You know, I'd like to just point out um, just a year ago when you were talking about a year ago, we did, we have through our neighborhood lot program over this last year since its inception, the program has produced uh, 1,516 lots uh, as of March, you know, as of March 1st of this year. So the program does work so that the neighborhood lot uh, program is supplemental and it, and it has been a good addition to our side lot program. So we do recognize that neighbors are um, taking care of those lots. So in one of the thoughts, since there wasn't, there are not infinite resources to be able to pay them to do that, we thought at a nominal rate to continue to make neighborhood lots available. So since they've already been doing it, at least they could have the benefit of ownership. And, and just to clarify, not necessarily just a, a reward, but more so, again, if I'm paying for the gas, you know, the gas in his lawnmower is coming out, some stipend, some type of program that connects these communities together with GSD, with the land bank. And, and let me be the first to tell you, I'm familiar. I'm coming from Mr. I'm very familiar with how authorities work. You only eat based off of the revenue you generate. Uh, but that being said, uh, and that comes from selling homes from, with the land bank, just to, just to clarify that. But with that, with that being said, I, I love to have those conversations offline to talk about how we bridge that gap. Uh, because again, that, that is, you know, it's, thank, it's a thankless job to them, but these are the, the folks and warriors, as I like to put that, are keeping our neighborhoods up on their own dime and they still pay taxes. Uh, and they still have their own homes and still have to cut their own grass, right? So be interested to, to have conversations offline as well as with GSD on how we can uh, make that happen or put the wand in your hand per se. Uh, second piece is uh, dealing with, uh, obviously, funding opportunities that you listed. Uh, on here, I see modular housing. 
familiar with that with Mishta. I still try to wrap my mind around it, how that helps us in the city of Detroit, not saying that it can't, but just based off of density and keeping the continuity and integrity of certain neighborhoods. Uh, folks, you know, I'm very familiar with modular houses look like, uh, but when they come into a neighborhood and we've had homes that were built, let's just say pre-1980, uh, those homes look a little bit different. And that also help, that also changes property values based off of what that modular home may be. Uh, but have, has there been any thought, you know, even though we're looking at like outside funding, if we were to get involved with like a mister with the modular housing program, identifying certain neighborhoods that have low density, meaning that there were three, four, five, six houses uh, contiguous uh, that you would, you know, use and, and want to implement modular housing there? I'm through the chair. So we applied and was, were successfully awarded money through MISHTA for the modular housing, and we are actually in the, um, we're going to be, I'm sure, starting the actual build phase this spring, um, and it's in Core City. And we picked, you know, two or three lots, so it was it was an area that well, there was some vacancy, so we could avoid the issue that you're um, highlighting of, you know, the, the diff disparity in the in the way the houses look, but I will say that um, the modular housing that we have selected does not look like what you may think modular housing looks like. It it, it they really have done a very nice job with this particular um, model that we have selected, um, but we are absolutely um, it's a, it's a pilot. We're trying to see it, you know how how that works out, and we. Would absolutely, if it's something that could be successful in the city, attempt to grow it. But we are at the pilot phase, so it's one house in Core City that we um, should, should be finished probably by the end of this end of this year. And let me say, I've had the chance to see all of Michigan's modular houses, mm -hmm. houses. Mm -hmm. and I'm not saying that they're. Um, I, I, I'm not going to say anything about habitat. Right. What, what I will say is I'm not saying that they are similar to some of those homes. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying there is a noticeable difference right. with a house with siding uh, or maybe a brick facade as opposed to true brick, brick homes, homes that have limestone steps, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so just keeping that, you know, trying to keep that in mind, keeping the integrity, quote, unquote, of the neighborhood, although creating that density is important, but just want to know what the ideas were behind that. I know you guys got funding and they implemented a plan on how you decide or decided to roll it out and, and keep portions of our neighborhoods. Right. Um, through the chair, we absolutely, you know, um, having done so many demos, it is a cursing and a bless, blessing in the sense we would love to have salvaged as many homes as we could, but unfortunately they were not salvageable. So we do have large tracts of land where there is vacancy. And so we won't necessarily bump into um, that particular in, in, that issue of, you know, a traditional brick house from the 40s sitting next to this newly built modular home. So we're trying to remain sensitive to that and avoid it to the extent we can. But again, also trying to create density in the neighborhood. So we're trying to balance all of those. Yeah. And I appreciate it. I look forward to having more discussions with you offline for that as well, uh, talking about the planning and the implementation of putting modular homes on. In, in our neighborhoods. Thank you, Madam President. Thank you, Member Durha, Councilmember Waters. Thank you, um, Madam President, and so good afternoon to everyone. Um, I was, uh, <clears throat> of course, going through just trying to find the exact numbers, residential uh, homes that were 
homes and lands sold to residentials versus non-residential people. I, um, I, didn't, I didn't see it yet. But let me just say this. Um, I wish I felt the same way as some of my, my colleagues uh, as it relates to the, to the great job that the land bank is doing. I'm not there yet. And there are a number of reasons um, that I'm not there. Um, the first thing I want to do is to read you a statement from a constituent who just texted to me and asked that I do. The land bank does not directly interact uh, with when community members try to resolve issues. This has been a long-standing issue. They have a track record of poor customer service and long delays. They have thousands of properties that have sat neglected for 10 or more years and they have not been able to address. So why are they now over the nuisance abatement program and taking more properties that residents now have to try to fight to keep? Housing that have been in families for years. How is the land bank telling others about blight when property under their control is atrocious and worse? They need a community oversight team to address many of the issues related to this entity. And so let me just further state that I remember a constituent called me and said that, um, well, you know, an inspector came out, wanted to purchase my property. What, wanted me to sell it to them, one of your inspectors. And when they refused, they said that that is when their trouble began. They started being harassed after that. And I, I can tell you a little bit more about it later, but I just, you know, I just, uh, I take issue um, with that. And the other thing I want to say is that I remember trying to assist a constituent, tried over and over and over again, couldn't get a response. That same constituent saw the mayor somewhere and said, Mr. Mayor, I'm having difficulties with this. Can you help me? Mayor said, okay, what do you need? All right. Mayor had his staff to call you all. You all took care of it right away. No respect for me as a council member who was trying to get the job done. You jumped when the mayor said jump. I need you all to understand that we are co-equal branches of government. So when I call uh, your office, I expect the same type of respect that you're willing to give to the mayor's office. I mean, I really do. So I wanted to uh, put that out there because it is an issue. Um, a whole lot of, I have a whole lot of questions and we will, we will email them. Um, but what are you doing to ensure um, that constituents are <clears throat> continuously fully educated about the process of purchase, rehab, and what it takes for the land bank to release their interests? That's the, that's the first question. And um, how have you improved your operations to avoid situations like the settlements that are happening right now, the settlements that you had to pay? Through the chair, um, let me first apologize to Councilmember Waters that you feel that we were, that we did not, let me, not, that we did not respond to you pro uh, promptly and that um, it took the mayor's intervention to get resolution. That's unacceptable and I personally apologize. Um, as for the 
comment um, that you read, the text message from your constituent, um, I would just say that um, we are the owner of last resort for, for currently approximately 73,000 um, publicly owned pieces of property. Unlike the, the, the individuals who are, who are private owners who have selected and opted to buy that property, um, they have chosen to own property in the city and they should keep it up. They should maintain it. We are not advocating on our own behalf as the land bank. We're advocating on behalf of the city and the residents to make sure that neighborhoods are safe for elderly people, for children, so that they can play and, and, and live safely in their neighborhoods. That's what the nuisance abatement program is about. Um, it is not our intention. We don't want to take the property. We just want the property owners to step up and take responsibility for the property. Um, as and, for the information, oh, me, I'm one sorry. Moment, one, hmm? Um, as a as a follow up to to that whole nuisance thing, you know there is somebody right now that you're working with, um, and you're on the brinks of of taking their property that's been in the family for years. They've put thousands of dollars in, and you've got your attorneys holding things up, stressing them out about their property. As a matter of fact, they came down to council a couple of weeks ago when we were in the auditorium to to talk about it, and they brought brought a, a couple of friends along who spoke up on their behalf. I need you all, when you see that residents are really trying to do all that they can to save their property, working with you, don't be bullying them with your lawyers and stuff. Work with them so that they can do what, what needs to be done. And, 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 and it's not happening. I'm not seeing it. And, and, and this person um, um, that you currently have their purchase... Uh, property tied up with the lawyers that came down here to council. I mean, they are working hard. They are uh, uh, community leaders. They they work very hard in their in their neighborhoods to make things better. And and, and you're giving them a runaround. I, I need you all to to release whatever it is that you're doing because they are making a good faith effort. They've done a whole lot of work. Uh, with that property, and I think you know who I'm talking about with that one. So if it's the if it's the property, and I don't want to put people's address on the record, but if it's the individual that I think we're talking about, we are working with them and have agreed to resolve that matter. So, I mean, I, I'm I'm not sure we're talking about the same, but mm -hmm. I think we are, mm -hmm. and there's resolution in the in the very near future for that that property owner. Um, but again. We don't take action unless there is visible um, signs of blight and neglect. The exterior of the home has to be in a particular condition before we'll even take action. And we, don't, we have to support that in court. So it's not just the land bank coming in with their lawyers trying to bully a property owner. It is we need something to support it because the court is not going to just take our word. They need to have visible proof of the, the um, blighted condition of the property. So... Um, and and I'll also I'll also say this: our attorneys, while again advocates for the city and for the residents, they are advocating on behalf of the, the city and the residents. We are we do try to be as compassionate as possible. And if we do see people making efforts, we do work with them. Our goal is not to take the property; it is just to see them fix it up. And so, any efforts that are made toward someone fixing up a property, we absolutely give them every opportunity. Period, and we can talk off offline. I can make sure I have all the addresses 
of the individuals that you're speaking about so that we can ensure that that is happening in all of those cases. I also wanted to speak to your question about education on how to buy rehab and have our lien released. So um, <clears throat> our website is a is a um, host of has a host of information on there. Our, all of our property is on there. Um, but however, if people need like hand, they, they need somebody to hold their hand through the process, we do have computers in our lobby where people can come down to the land bank and we can walk them through either purchasing a side lot, how they register to become a purchaser, to bid on property. Um, also, our, our um, compliance reps are assigned to individuals to kind of walk them through, to show them how to upload their pictures, to show the progress that taking place on the property. We, again, operate in a very large volume, and so we try to automate as many things as possible, but we recognize that um, technology, everyone is not at the same place in te with technology, so we do allow people to come down and bring their updates, and we will make sure that they're uploaded so that people remain in compliance. And again, they, there is a scorecard that each buyer has visibility, and they can see every time they send us an update, that's on that scorecard, there's a green checkbox that shows them you have six, six things that you have to, achieve, to do to achieve compliance, and every time you do one of those things, the box is checked off, and they can see, um, they can see uh, how close they are to achieving compliance. And then once they achieve compliance, our legal team releases our lien, we tear up our revertal deed, and we send them on their way. And the, again, the goal is never to take the property back. We don't want the property back. We want to see people be successful. But a lot of individuals in compliance need help and they need resources. Um, and so we are trying to figure out ways to help them. They need financial assistance. So a lot of them need, like, education on how to do things. And so we, to the extent we possible, we try to share what information we have, resources we have, discounts that we can make available because we're the land bank, we try to make it available for our buyers so that they can navigate that rehab process as um, seamlessly as possible. All right, so I'll finally, Madam President, I'll just say that um, I hope that, see, one of the problems with authorities is you guys are so far removed from the people that you really have to serve. And so when, when, when you're not doing all you're supposed to do, we, we get it, they, they know so they call us. So, and for all those folks who own this property, a lot of property here in this city from out of state, out of the country, I want you to go after them the same way that you do the residents who, who have property here. Um, because for, for me, too, it's too much ownership that's, that's not right here. Not even just here in the city, but not even here in Michigan. They're out. They're, they're too, they're out of this, uh, this state. So, um, but I, I, I need you all, I'm not saying to just let people get away with something, but recognize who you're working with. We are very sensitive, I am, to, to residents, you know, who've gone through some very, very tough times. And so I'm asking that you work with them. Uh, to make sure if they are really trying to save their property and do whatever it is they're supposed to do, please work with them. Don't just act like you're working with some big business person because, because you're not. And I need you to understand the difference. Through the chair, 
um, Councilmember Waters, I commit to you that we do do that and we will continue to do that. And I personally, if there is anyone who needs some help that you that is coming to you for, for help, you can call me personally and I will sit and walk with them through the process and help them because all of our team is, is charged with being, as you have indicated, compassionate and sensitive. We recognize that our buyers are oftentimes elderly. They're oftentimes um, new to rehab. They they a lot of times don't have any idea the scale and scope of the undertaking that they have they have ahead of them. And so we are particularly sensitive to that. Again, we scale down our requirements because we recognize that um, these people, you know, they need help. They and we can't afford to hold this reverter deed over their head indefinitely if they if we really expect them to invest in this house and make it a home for themselves. So um, again, if there are individuals who you personally, I, I you know, I, I'll ask you to share that information with me personally, and I'll make sure that we walk. Uh, walk with them through the process and help them get a, get across the finish line if that's indeed what they're trying to do. Okay, and thanks for showing up at the at the Hope for Andros. So thank you so much Absolutely. for your support. All right. Thank you, Member Calloway. Thank you, Madam Chair. I don't know if this is possible or not, but I do have my questions in writing. Thank you all for being here, and thank you for always supporting what we're doing in District 2 by showing up. I appreciate that and um, um, answering my calls. But I don't know if this is possible, but through the chair to Mr. Whitaker, is it possible to yield my two questions to Member Waters? Because it looks like she have, has more questions, and mine are in writing that I'm willing to submit. So I don't know if um, I'm able to do that, but I will certainly yield my two questions over to Member Waters if that's possible. Sir, yes, yeah, the chair's oh, through the chair. So, through the chair, <laughs> through the chair, Madam Chair. Oh, yes. there's Dr. Powers. Dr. Powers, if I may, um, in the rules, yielding to another council member isn't possible, but um, the time, of course, is always up to the chair. So, the, the chair could do as she wished, but the actual yielding um, isn't permitted. Um, through the chair. So, Dr. Powers, I am the chair of the Rules Committee. So, are you saying that is a rule that's in yes, the rules? Yes, ma'am. Okay, so that's probably one we probably need to um, look at. But through the chair, I, I, I would like to yield my two minutes, if, my two questions to Member Waters, if possible. And thank you. And I will be looking at making that change in the rules. Thank you, um, yes, Dr. Yes. Powers. Thank you, Madam Chair. You're welcome. Member Waters, did you have anything additional? Well, I, I, mean, I have a few questions, but I did say that I would email. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so we, we, I want to try, I've been very, very kind uh, as far as the two questions per person. I'm trying to allow everyone to speak. I know HRD and Land Bank are heavy issues. We get a lot of calls and complaints, but if we could just try to limit to two, two questions. So if you want to do two more, go right ahead. But we are extremely behind today. We have IT that's been waiting. Um, so, but Member Waters, if you have additional <laughs> questions, and again, we all are going to submit questions in writing as well, too. Oh, oh, okay. All right, so um, does the land bank owe the city any money? Through the chair, no, we do not. You do not. Okay, all right. So that was a straightforward question. <laughs> <laughs> I, so through the chair, I'm assuming you're talking about the demo advance fund? I, I'm, I'm talking about any kind oh, of yeah, no. So no, we don't own it. We don't. <laughs> I, I know you have a champion over here kind of next to me. You understand. <laughs> oh, All right, so... Um, what financial institution does the uh, land bank um, currently have where, where you work with 
people in, in terms of financial literacy, mortgaging? Do, do, you, do you help people identify those kinds of things? Because you know what, when, you, when you're purchasing something, I mean, you, we need financial literacy. Through the chair. And um, we need mortgages. <laughs> through the chair, <laughs> Councilmember Waters. Um, <clears throat> we do not uh, provide financial literacy services. Okay. We do, um, like I said, we will subordinate our lien to, indi to any, to any um, purchaser who, needs to, who wants to get a mortgage to do the rehab on their house so if they can find a mortgage company who will finance it. A lot of times mortgage companies, they see our lien and they're like, well, we don't want to do that. But we will subordinate our interest to the mortgage company so that they can get financing to do their rehab. But we are not in the business of picking banks and telling people which, what is a good bank and what is a not. So we kind of stay out of it. But once they bring us the bank, we absolutely work with them to make sure that they can get through the process and rehab that house. And the bank will have um, a uh, primary lien on the house and ours will be subordinate. Oh, so, well, yes. I do like that. So thank you. Thank you, Madam thank President. You, thank you, Member Waters. Um, President Pro Tem Tate, you, have, you, you didn't go right. Remember that? I'm sorry. Okay. Thank you, Madam President. Thank you all for being here. Um, and and similar to Member Vincent, I recall what life was like uh, prior to the land bank being stood up, and it was it was terrible. Uh, when we started talking about trying to transfer properties, um, sell properties, um, and then just even looking at where the land bank was in its first iteration to where it is today, uh, tremendous change. Uh, that being said, of course, there's always room for improvement. Um, no matter who you are, where you are, and what you are. Um, I also I want to piggyback on one of the, when we start talking about the cost, the true cost of the land bank. I know Madam President brought up some costs that may not be, may not have been thought about, but another potential hidden cost, do you all, when you calculate the cost of, of the land bank to the city of Detroit, do you calculate uh, drainage fees? Um, how many properties do you have currently? Structures? So we currently have 9,316 properties in, in our inventory. And I get every day when I talk to folks, you know, the rain falls. Why am I being charged for rain falling? I can't control that. But being charged for it. Land Bank, are you calculating that cost into the cost of what the city um, invests in the Land Bank when we start talking about storm drain fees? So through the chair, when you say the drainage fees, you are rain coming down. People get charged every day. Rain coming down goes into the to the to the to the drain. If the rain on your roof, if depending on how large your roof is, it's calculated that way. Depending on how large your driveway is, it's calculated that way. So most of those single family dwellings in the land bank, a lot of them have roofs, not all. <laughs> they have at least some surface. <laughs> But and, and and many of them have driveways as well, right. so people are getting charged. I mean, it sounds crazy, right? People are getting charged for the rain that comes down, snow that melts, goes into the drain. Do you calculate that same cost with land bank proper structures? Through the chair, no, we I have not um, undertaken that effort to calculate drainage fees associated with land bank property. I will defer to um, any of my partners up here if they may have that answer but I don't yeah I don't think you do I mean but I just I, I brought it up because there's other hidden costs mm -hmm. that is also being uh, provided to the land bank to uh, stand you guys up and again 
we often have to look at is, is the juice worth the squeeze, so to speak, you know, and you weigh the balance. I want to talk about the, um, your slide here that says average home values have quadrupled. Uh, it says here that in 2014, the average sale price uh, for a home was 33600 and some change. Uh, and in 20, 2022 is $122,839 uh, and some change. How, how much of that have you analyzed to determine was a land bank related, seeing that it's in this slide deck? So through the chair, I'm going to turn over the um, answering of that question to my esteemed colleague, Robbie Lamb. But I will say um, we are not... The intent of this slide was not to say that we are the sole cause of the quadrupling of property values, but that our programming that has impacted every neighborhood across the city has, we believe, um, led to, in part, this quadrupling of home values. But I'll turn it over to Robbie, who is our data expert. So uh, through the chair to pro temptate, uh, thank you so much for raising this issue. Um, the table is really drawing from MLS sales. This data is coming from RealComp, which is the local MLS provider. Um, and, you know, um, the, the n previous slide in the deck was a economic impact analysis from a vendor, um, um, Munetrix, yep. which does uh, economic impact analysis for land banks around the country. And when you try to um, isolate the economic impact they are, they are uh, reporting versus the overall impact we see in the city, um, you know, I, I, I um, believe the land bank is probably likely responsible for 5 or 10% of the overall impact we've seen across the city. There are a number of, you know, things going on, but uh, that's how I sort of um, I relate those two uh, points we have. Yeah, the only reason I bring it up again, if it's being put in a slide deck, let's make sure we fully be transparent about how land bank plays a role in it. Uh, last question, Madam President, is in terms of the reverter uh, clause. How how many reversions, or I guess that's what we call when we claw back the properties, how many of those have we had in the last, I mean, we'll start with 2019. I don't, I didn't see a any So I can go back that one. as far as 20, since the beginning of our programming, we have done a little over 1,500 total. So of all the 17,000 properties that we've sold, we've taken about, back about 1,500. So it's a little less than 10%. And I know that there's this six-month window that you give folks, and then you give folks an extension as well. Um, what's the trigger to finally clawing back those properties? Because there's a big developer that I've sent some questions about that have some properties that are out there that are not uh, certainly habitable. So... We start at six months, but we don't take property back after six months. 42% of our um, current pipeline, the 6,500, has been in that pipeline for two-plus years. So we give people, as long as they're showing progress and communicating with us about what their struggles are, we, we give them t um, more time. It is only when they either fail to communicate for months and months or fail to show any progress for months and months that we then begin the process of potential of potentially reconveying the property and before we do that we send them multiple notices that say please contact us please contact us. we put signs on the property we send them registered mail so that they can be put on alert like we need you to get in communication with us and oftentimes 
once they recognize that the seriousness, seriousness of it, they do get back into contact with us. That's how we've been able to keep our failure rate under 10%. because Just because you're in potential reconvey doesn't mean we're going to take it. We just need you to start communicating with us again and, and to start to show progress. And so it is a, a long process um, before we, we, we take a property back. Is there a time frame where we saw that that was increasing more, you know, folks not uh, contacting you back? I mean, COVID did a whole lot of things to folks, but is there a certain time frame where you saw that that increased more so than others? Quite frankly, right now we're seeing that. So we, we saw our sales spike during COVID, um, and we were shocked. And that was home. like two, <laughs> two years ago, and a lot of those buyers have – failed to communicate, failed to do anything, and they're in that bucket of potential reconvey. Any game plan on how to address that? So we're actually trying to create some tools again. Um, a lot of it, the problem is getting them to communicate with us because a lot of times when people um, are concerned that you're going to take their property, they don't communicate. And what I try to tell people is the opposite. If you over-communicate, it makes it so much easier. It makes us able to help you better. We may be able to help you in ways you hadn't thought about if you just communicate. Um, but we do have a tool that we have. Um, we're trying to make it a little bit more robust for individuals who have invested and for some reason they're stuck. They lost their job or whatever. If they've invested a certain a significant amount of money in the property and they can't get over the finish line, they can. if they find somebody who can buy it, from them, we will let that happen so that they aren't lost. They haven't lost their money. It's called our assignment policy, and so that is a tool that we have recently um, created, and we're trying to uh, make it a more robust tool to see how many people can actually take advantage of that. So even if you can't do it, we can put it in the hands of somebody who can complete it, and that and that previous buyer, through you know no fault of their own won't be, they won't have lost their, all their investment. Thank you. We still have a, a, some additional questions Absolutely. to uh, submit, so be on the lookout for those. And in the interest of time, Madam President, I will okay. the floor. Thank you. Thank you, Pro Tim Tate. Uh, Councilmember Young. Thank you, Madam President. Good to see you guys here. Appreciate you <clears throat> and what you do. I just wanted to ask you, first of all, I wanted to ask you, um, and I'm kind of piggybacking off of um, Member Durhall's question here, but when we're talking about dealing with programs to, for citizens that are mowing these lots and things of this nature, do you encourage or do you have a program that aid, assist, help with residents to either form community land trusts or be able to transfer these properties or donate these properties over to a community housing development organization that that community, that black club, or that neighborhood association might have? So we don't have a program that speaks specifically to that, but we do, um, in partnership with um, the city, our neighborhood beautification effort, where we have our lots are used for the neighborhood beautification, the, the, the funding that I think President Sheffield has, has led that effort. Yeah. Yes, our lots are used for that, but there isn't anything um, that is like what you described, but... I'm open to have conversations. Like yeah. we have 64,000 lots, and so to find ways to return those to productive use as quickly as possible would be great. Yeah. Do you have a, a specific? If, I mean, I know I'm kind of asking off the top of your head here, but do you have like a specific price point 
in terms of what that would cost to do something like that? Do you have ideas in terms of FTEs, what you would need for that? Because I hate to, like, just mandate that you do something, you know, and I don't give you any money for it, and so nothing happens with it. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, no, we don't have um, – we have not investigated that, but we could investigate that if, if it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I really appreciate Out with that. FTEs and, and structure and all of that. Yeah, and um, I would like to uh, put that into, I want to make a motion to put into executive session um, a community land trust program and a community housing development organization um, that um, the Land Bank Authority has a program to encourage residents in neighborhood associations and block clubs to be able to do that. All right, you said in the closing resolution or to executive session? No, executive session. Okay, motion has been made. Hearing no objections, that action will be taken. Excellent. Uh, my next question, and, and, and I kind of stole this from um, LPD here, so I don't want, you know, I don't want them coming at me saying, hey, that was my question. You know, I don't want Mr. Whitaker coming at me. Um, but the question that I have uh, is, because you're saying that you're going to um, have through the disposition process, you know, not have any more properties by the end of 2024, correct? Um, chair, um, we won't have any of our current property. Oh, your current property. Okay, because <laughs> right. I was getting ready to say it, it, it's hard to make that. I mean, is it harder to make? Is part of the reason why you're having the issue that you're having with the community, and part of the issue why it's it's harder for you to uh, dispossess all those properties is because the demolition department that's because de- they're demolishing so many properties, and so then those properties are demolished. You have these new land, and you have these new lots that are there. And so it's like, you know, these are now more lots that you have to take care of that people are living next to that they're asking to get that they can't get for whatever reason. I mean, is it kind of like, you know, like two steps forward and one step back? Through the chair, actually we see it differently. The demolition department is like our partner. And so they're eliminating blight, blighted houses that we can't sell that are bringing down property values that are making it's making it harder for us to sell the properties that are salvageable. Okay. So they're actually helping us to what we've seen is, you know, once those demolished houses are out of the way, property values get, they go up, and people are more willing to buy our, our structures. Um, so I would say, no, the demolition department has actually been a, a very um, supportive help and partner in us trying to dispose of our um, structures as quickly as possible. That does, in turn, create a vacant lot, um, which we then have to maintain, but it's right. a vacant structure, a vacant lot. Arguably, the vacant lot is is a much easier um, thing to maintain. Arguably. No, I understand what you're saying. No, I understand. What you're saying. If, if you had to choose between one or the other, you choose the other one to sell property. No, no, I understand what you're saying. And then um, finally, I just wanted to ask: um, Is there a partnership, or do you work with at all lots that you have that you maintain? Is there is there a partnership at all with the Department of uh, Parks and Rec? to be able to turn some of those properties into pocket parks at all? And what what is that process, and how often does that happen? Through the chair, I'm going to turn that um, question over to Rob, Robbie Lynn for an answer. So, uh, chair to uh, Council Member Young, I, I'm so glad you asked this question. It's something that's really near and dear to my heart. We work actively with the parks team at GSD, and um, I think probably you know, at least every other month, if not more frequently, we are taking transactions to our board to transfer properties to the parks team. And we are, I think, actively working to help them with site assembly through um, acquisition, demolition, um, parcel combinations, that sort of thing to uh, help them make new parks. 
Excellent. No, thank you. I, I, this is my final question. I just wanted to ask this. Can you give me a breakdown of what your of what your buyer portfolio looks like or your seller portfolio, excuse me, looks like in terms of are they is the majority of them community organizations? Are they are they individual residents? Are they small businesses? Are they major? Are they um multinational corporations? What what is that clientele that the majority of these properties are being transferred? Are they are they interagency department transfers? What is it? And percentage wise. Turn your microphone on. One hundred percent of our side lots and neighborhood lots. So all of the, the vacant lots that we sold are to Detroit residents. So you have to own a property that's occupied in the city in order to qualify to buy a side lot for $100. And you have to be within 500 feet of a neighborhood lot. And you have to, and that has to be your principal residence in order for you to buy a neighborhood lot. So 100% of those vacant lot sales um, that I'm talking about for side lots and neighborhood lots are to Detroit residents. For our structure sales, um, the the voluntary surveys that we're able to do, we we are restricted in what we can ask, but the voluntary surveys that we um, have conducted from our buyers um, show that 72% of our purchasers are Detroiters, 76% of them are African American, and 67% of them were renters, and now they own a property. So that's how our demographic breaks down. Um, there's this myth that we're selling most of our land to the developers, and that just is not. It was like 19 to 20. I, I read like an article in Detroit Metro Times of like 19 to 20 percent, and like it is not just the number was small, but it like it, the growth of it. Mm-hmm. So like the gro- so even though the number was smaller than the majority, but like the growth of the properties that are being sold to these companies were a problem. And that's why I was just asking for those that 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 type of data, you know, and the type of breakdown that you gave me. You know what I mean? Just so I could kind of understand. So when I'm going out there, I can kind of tell my residents, you know, no, it's this, this, that, and the third, and this is here. So I just have that. So if I could just have that sit to my office, I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you, Madam President. I'm done. Thank you. Thank you. And I have several questions we'll submit in writing. Um, I, I did just one quick question regarding bundled properties. I know that 10 or more has to come before the city council for approval, but the ones that may be coming in at nine, for example, uh, I still oftentimes hear about concerns of bundled property being sold in communities. So how transparent is that process and the policies around that? If you could just speak to briefly around uh Selling bundles, bundles of property. So through the chair, I will add, um, I'll defer that to Jono, um, our director of real estate sales and um, marketing. But I will say that we have made it a policy to um, update council members mm-hmm. for any like sales that are happening within their district, so that you know what's going on, even if it's less than, even if it's not necessarily coming to you in a resolution because it's, it's more than ten mm-hmm. projects that are happening in your neighborhood. We, we we try to make sure you guys know. But I'll turn it over to Jono to give you specific data. Uh, to the chair. So we, that is actually written into the MOU. Mm-hmm. And um, what we've done is it's actually embedded in all of our disposition policies as well. So it is a policy across the board with um, Blame Bank. Uh, we've also put an additional protection in place. So every transaction of more than five, for example, has to go to our board. We brief our board on every single transaction, but that also requires board formal approval by resolution for any transaction over five. We don't um, we don't try to get cute with the nine, is, is, mm-hmm. is I think the easiest way for me to say that. We've had 
requests for, well, if we combine these, it's like, no, we're still going to take it. You can combine later if you'd mm -hmm. like. But ultimately, if parcels come to us with individual parcel IDs, we look at them as individual parcels, and that's what makes up the 9, the 10, whatever that number is. What happens to those parcels later, it still requires the approvals from um, the required approvals of our, of our board as well as city council. So we don't, you know, we don't try to skirt that at all. All right, well, uh, we appreciate you. I know there's tons of questions. We can sit here all day with the Detroit Land Bank Authority, but um, I do want to commend the progress that you all have made. I do think we have uh, some ways to go, especially as it relates to customer service and addressing those more complex issues that you mentioned earlier, uh, but looking forward to the continued work and collaboration with you all, all right? Thank you so much. Thank we you. are, too. And we do, uh, I do have questions. We'll be looking forward to those responses as well. Thank you so much. All right, thank you. All right, we're going to go to our, our last budget discussion for today, and that is the Department of Innovation and Technology.